We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there. I'll make sure I got my right notes here. I did a wedding last night. I don't want to confuse those. Dearly beloved, gathered here. Knowledge. Acts is where we are. So, uh, four weeks in to the study of the book of Acts, and uh, we're not going through kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but kind of thematically over the course of nine weeks, looking at this story of what happened in the first 30 years after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so we started immediately after Easter, where we celebrated the empty tomb, and now we're in the narrative of what happens with this little ragtag bunch of disciples that are on a mission to join uh, Jesus and what he's doing in the world. And so it's a fascinating story, even just through a historical lens. You have these 30 years where the Christian faith and the good news about Jesus goes from being just something that's taking place in one little geographical area and by the end of the 30 years has spread to the entire known world at the time. And so it's an amazing story, just historically or sociologically or whatever. We're looking at it through the lens of the book of Acts is a description of the normative Christian life. Or another way of saying that would be, what does it look like to be a practicing Christian? We often talk about being a professing Christian, which we hope we are, that we believe the gospel and we believe the story of the Bible and the good news about Jesus. But we all know that if we're really going to follow Jesus and if we're really going to follow him together as a church community, that it would move beyond being professing or confessing Christians and it would actually become the way that we live, that the life of Jesus would become visible in us that we would find ourselves bearing his image in the way we live everyday life. So the other six days, right? So in the book of Acts, we have this description of what it means, what it looks like for these early Christians to actually practice their faith. And so the Bible scholar Michael Green uh, wrote one of the books that's been really helpful as we've been on this journey. And what he does in his book is surveys in depth the entire book of Acts, and he comes up with a list of 11 characteristics that marked the lives of these early Christ followers. Okay, so I want to share that list with you real quick, and this kind of just gives you an overview of how the disciples practiced their faith in the book of Acts. 11, 11 marks. First is dedication. So these early Christians were dedicated to Jesus and committed to being faithful to him no matter what the cost. And for many of them, there was great consequence. It cost them their comfort, cost them their security, and in many cases, it literally cost them their lives, but they were dedicated. Secondly, enthusiasm. You see in the book of Acts that these guys aren't following Jesus simply kind of out of empty religion or duty or obligation, but it seems to come from this really deep, energetic place from within them. They have this infectious passion for Christ and for his kingdom, and, and they enthusiastically join Jesus on his mission in the world. Thirdly, joy. You see this picture all the way through Acts that the disciples are constantly celebrating 
rejoicing, praising and thanking God, not just when things are going well, but even in the face of horrible opposition and even in the face of persecution. They continue to be joyful and to be glad. Fourth, faith. They believed in God's sovereign control over their lives and over all things, and they trusted him for leading and for provision, that they believed that with wherever God called them to go, whatever God called them to do, that God was going to be faithful to provide for them along the way. So they live a life of deep, enduring faith. Next, endurance. We see them standing strong, sticking with it, enduring in the face of hardship, in the face of persecution and opposition. They are dedicated to this task, no matter what they come up against. Next, holiness. They live a life that was ethically and morally pure. At least they were committed to that. And where they didn't, they had a practice, uh, a regular practice of confessing their sins and gathering together something like this to align their lives with the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so they were committed to living holy or set-apart lives that were God-honoring, but at the same time, without falling into legalism. Next, spiritual power. They lived lives, I would put it this way, they lived lives that would be impossible without God. They were attempting great things for God. The, the, the most unlikely people, God was using them in supernatural ways to proclaim and to demonstrate the good news about God's kingdom, how things are supposed to be. And so all the way through the story, you see this dependence upon the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Next, courage. They boldly told the story of Jesus and bravely confronted the idols in their culture. Many times we see them getting thrown out of a city for professing faith in Christ and simply to re-enter the city again, boldly, like they can't stop telling the story. Next, generosity. They saw all that they had as a gift from God and they freely gave, freely gave to anyone in need. And so many passages give us this glimpse that they were open-handed with their money and with their stuff. And they received all of life as grace, with gratitude, and saw everything that they owned as an opportunity to participate in God's mission in the world. Uh, next is prayer. They were devoted to living a life of prayerful dependence upon God. That they were gathering together to pray. And I would say it wasn't just because they were committed to it. It's because the life they were living together required them to pray. Right? So they weren't praying because they were supposed to. They were praying because they needed to. They were attempting this life on mission with Jesus to see the world change, to see the gospel go forth, to see the sick healed and the outcast included. And that kind of dedication to that kind of mission will create a prayerful community. And so they were people who prayed. And finally, transformation. They were committed to being changed and also to bringing change to the world. Yeah, that last one strikes me as something for us today to consider as a characteristic that's quite unique to the church. Because there's lots of groups or communities in the world that we could align ourselves with. 
And many of those communities have to do with we join that group so that we can experience growth or change or healing or health or something like that. So we go because we, we need help and we want to be changed. Okay, that's great. There's other communities or groups that you can be part of that are all about changing the world. And whether they're political or social or religious, like we gather together not to acknowledge that there's anything wrong with us, but to acknowledge that there's something wrong with the world, right? So there's groups that exist for your change and groups that exist for us to help change the world. The church, from the very beginning, has occupied this unique space of doing both. That when we gather here, on Sundays and when we gather throughout the week in homes, we come both acknowledging that we are in need of transformation, that we are people in need of healing, we are at people who need to grow and mature and for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we come with a humility and an open-handedness to the grace of God. But we also come Banding together because we want to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be part of what Jesus is doing in the world. We want to join with him as he is reconciling all things back to himself. And so it's a unique space that the church has always occupied as those who are committed to transformation, both of ourselves and of the world around us. And so... He gives these 11 characteristics. The one I, focus, I want to focus in on this morning um, is number nine. We're going to talk about generosity, right? Which is just super fun for me and for you to get together and talk about how you should give your money away, right? Some of you have had bad experiences with church. Some of you have had... Um, really hurtful things that have happened, and some of it has had to do with money. And it's not hard to find really terrible examples out in the culture, on reality TV, on TBN, or whatever, of these, you know, uh, major scandals in, and these televangelists flying their jets and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I know that it's a touchy subject, and I know that for some of you there's like, if you're visiting today, you're like, great, he's talking about money, right? That's all the church ever wants. I, I get that. Let me tell you why we have to talk about money and why I'm happy to do it, even though it's a little awkward. We have to talk about money because Jesus talks about money all the time. In fact, if you did the math, he actually talks more about money than he does about prayer, over half of his parables have to do with money. So you actually can't talk about Jesus, and you definitely can't talk about being a follower of Jesus without being able to have a conversation about money. Okay? So here's why I'm really comfortable with this. Because we, as a church, are devoted to becoming authentic followers of Christ. Part of our vision statement is that we, as Antioch, would be an authentic expression of Christianity in the city of Bend. And so we come Sunday mornings to worship, to be called into worship, to orient our entire life around Jesus, to find our place as those who are in union with him and community with one another. 
And so every week we, we call one another to submit ourselves, to trust our lives to Jesus again. And we talk about trusting him with our spirituality and trusting him with our mind and trusting him with our bodies and with our marriages and with our families, trusting him with our work. But for some reason, we get a little awkward when we talk about trusting Jesus with our finances. Why do you think that is? Probably because money is God around here. In Western culture. And it feels like, hey, you can talk about anything else. But when we start talking about money, it gets weird because it starts to threaten something. One of my least favorite things in this conversation, um, finances and economics and all that, is when people talk about how much someone is worth. Meaning how many assets you have, how much you have in the bank, your net worth. And you'll even hear a guy like Donald Trump go, I'm worth $10 billion. Okay? So that language isn't a statement about how much money I have in the bank. He's saying that's how much he is worth, his life is worth. Love him or hate him, he's worth way more than that. Because he's made in the image of likeness of God. And guess what? Every single person on the planet is worth way more than 10 billion as well. We have this economic language to describe human value. That's God kind of stuff. Do you get what I'm saying? So the most strung out, haggard, meth addict in the gutter is worth way more than 10 billion as well. So we confront this idol culturally and understand that when we talk about this, we're simply talking about what it means to be an authentic disciple of Christ. And so I come at this this morning as one of the pastors here at Antioch. This isn't a fundraising uh, speech this morning. This isn't like, hey, we got bills to pay and we got staff to pay and that sort of thing. That's not the primary reason we have this conversation. Primarily, we come to this conversation because we are trying to follow Jesus faithfully. So the main point behind the conversation in generosity isn't that God or the church needs your money. It's that you need to be generous. Now, you don't have to follow Jesus. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to follow him with this as well. Otherwise, we're hypocrites and everything we do here is the exact opposite of authenticity. Okay? So... It was going to be fun, right? <laughs> um, let's read Acts 4. Verse 32-37, a glimpse of how this early church viewed and used their money and their stuff. Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. 
For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, there's several passages that read very similar to this, but we'll just focus on this one this morning because it kind of captures the broad picture of what Acts describes here. And so the first thing you see, we'll just make a few observations. The first thing at the end of verse 32 is that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Okay, so before you start calling out them commies or anything like that, it wasn't that they claimed that their stuff belonged to everybody. It's that they saw everything they had as gods. They were part of this ancient tradition going back all the way to Israel where the psalm would profess that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is the creator and the owner of all things. And so these early believers, whatever money or whatever stuff they had, they didn't see it as theirs, and they didn't even necessarily see it as everyone's. They saw it as God's. And they saw themselves as stewards of what God had entrusted to them. They saw their money and stuff as God's things in their hands. And so they received everything they had with gratitude. Now for us, culturally, in many cultures really, this confronts pretty strongly the way that we think about our money and our stuff. Because we tend to think that everything we had, we worked for. We've earned it. We worked hard in school. We worked hard in our career. And whatever we've gotten in return is a result of our devotion and our dedication. Now, I'm not saying that you haven't worked hard. But if you take a big step back and go, how did you even get in a place where you had the opportunity to go to that school or to have that job? Or in fact, did you even have anything to do with choosing where or when or to whom you would be born. Someone once said that many of us think (laughs) that we hit a triple when we were actually born on third base. Right? So yeah, you have worked hard because you were born into an environment that paved that way for you. Not that you haven't had adversity or anything to overcome, but if you were born a couple hundred years ago, a couple thousand miles away in the mountains of Nepal or something like that, obviously things would have gone differently. And so the early Christians saw all of life as grace, that every breath in my lungs is a gift from God. Every day I wake up is a gift from God. A sharp mind and an able body and a support system uh, uh, oftentimes marked by privilege, is a gift from God. And so, yeah, they worked hard and they were dedicated, but that didn't stop them from receiving all of life as grace. So as Christians, if we want to talk about what, getting what we actually deserve, Paul has some pretty clear words about that in the book of Romans. That the wages of sin is death. So if you want to talk about 
getting what you deserve, what we deserve is death. What we deserve in our rebellion against God is to be eternally separated from him. But the gospel is that God doesn't give us what, he, what we deserve. He actually gave Jesus what we deserve and gives us what Jesus deserves. That we are made one with the Father, brought into communion with him, given life and life abundantly. And maybe we have a lot of stuff by cultural standards or maybe we have a little But we, like the early Christians, are called to see and to receive everything that we have as as coming and belonging to God. So that's the first observation. Secondly, what was their motivation for generosity? At the end of verse 33, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So they gave to anyone who had need. Why? in response to the grace of God. See, at the heart of the gospel is this grace, 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 over and over. That God's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God has given himself to us in his son and in his spirit. We are saved by grace. If that's true, then followers of Jesus should be the most gracious people in the world. And we could simply replace the word grace with generosity. God's been generous to us. He's given to us. He's opened up his life and his heart and his very existence to us. God is a generous God. And we are the recipients of that generosity and these early Christians saw themselves not only as those that received grace and generosity from God, but as those who had then extended. So the most recent statistics I could find said that the average American gives away 2.3% of their wealth. 2.3%. The average American Christian gives away 2.8%. There's a difference, but not a big one. Right? And if we are going to be the people in the world today that are claiming God has been so gracious to us, God has been so generous to us, all of life is grace, everything we have is a gift from God, then it just seems like there should be a radical difference between followers of Jesus and those who don't know him in terms of our generosity. Wouldn't you agree? Like, don't you think this, if this story's true, it would really change us? It would change the way we saw and used our money and our stuff. But for whatever reasons, the story gets perverted and twisted. And by and large, it just hasn't shown up that way. Okay? So, a couple more observations. Um... And verse 34, from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So what's fascinating to me is that these early Christians were so captivated by the grace and generosity of God that they didn't give because they were supposed to or because some preacher got up and made them feel guilty about it. They wanted to give. 
Like they had actually believed Christ's words that it's more blessed. It's a happier life to give than to receive. And so they weren't just giving out of their excess. They weren't just giving after all the bills had been paid and all the trips had been taken and all the things had been purchased and I'll see whatever's left over and I'll give it to God and to the work of the kingdom. They were actually trying to find out creative ways that we can give more, invest more. It's an amazing picture. They're going, huh, I gave all the money I have. What else can I give? I know, I'll go sell that field. I'm going to throw stuff on Craigslist. I'm going to do whatever I can because I love to give. It's actually better. It's happier, more blessed to give. God had changed their hearts. And so they were creative and they were passionate and they were proactive in their giving. And you don't get the sense that they were doing it to impress anybody else or even to impress themselves. And we fall into those traps often. Jesus spoke directly about that. He said, when you give, assuming that his people would be generous, he said, when you give, don't do it so that others will see you and praise you. He says, do it before the Father. Do it as an act of worship. Now, if other people happen to see you or notice, that's okay, but that's not why you do it. So I worked at a church uh, a while ago where we had a special offering twice a year where we would raise money for missions and, and other things. And uh, the goal of the offering this one particular year was $200,000 in one Sunday that was going to be given away around the world. And uh, somebody in the church drops a million-dollar check in the bucket. And so at the end of the service, they had added all the gifts up, and they put the the total up on the screen. The goal was 200000 They get $1.2 million in one Sunday. Okay. The next day, the dude comes into the pastor's office and says, I'd like to be publicly acknowledged for my gift. And my pastor at the time, wise and devout and disciplined man, takes the check out of his drawer and hands it back to the guy. Now, if this were me, I'm sure we could figure out a win-win, right? (laughs) What I would do is get up the next Sunday and say, hey, everybody, the million-dollar gift was from Bob here, and Bob has asked to be publicly acknowledged. (laughs) So thanks, Bob. (laughs) Right? (laughs) We can play that game. I so respect what my pastor at the time did that day, though. Because he was a true pastor in the sense that he was more concerned about this guy's soul than about the church bank account. Like the life of Jesus becomes visible in really countercultural, counterintuitive ways. Because money's not God, it's simply one of the gifts we've been given to serve God and to worship God. And then final observation is that these guys were generous in many directions. So you get the sense that sometimes their generosity took the form of brother to brother or sister to brother, sister to sister within the church community. 
And they were committed to the idea that everyone here should have everything that they need. And so if half of us are starving and half of us are trying to lose weight, there's something wrong there. And so we hear stories throughout history of the early church. Some of them would voluntarily fast. They would abstain from food so that that food and money could be given to their, those in their fellowship who lacked. And so generosity takes the form of, I see needs amongst those in, in my church, and I want to rise to the occasion and meet that need. In fact, just this morning, one of our sisters here shared that she has a uh, father who's on his way out, and she's trying to figure out how to fly down to California to see him. She goes, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but maybe somebody here knows something, right? I would love us to be the kind of church that's like, yeah, I could help meet that need. That's legit. That's my sister. Okay, so that's where one way their generosity worked out. We also know that it wasn't just within the church, that they were committed to caring for the least of these all around them. In their city, the Christians had the reputation for being generous to those who didn't believe what they believe or live how they live, those who were far from God. And wherever they saw needs, they would sacrificially, creatively, generously use their resources, money, but also their time, their gifts, their talents, to serve and to bless. And so the early church had this vision that Jesus dreams of resourcing the world through the local church. And they caught that vision. They understood that we aren't blessed to be blessed. We are blessed to be a blessing. So if your neighbor was a follower of Jesus, you're stoked, right? Because they see whatever they have, not just for themselves, but to, to be shared, to be given. If a Christ follower moves in next door and he's got a snowmobile, you've got a snowmobile, right? That's pretty sweet. If he has food, you've got food. This is how these Christians lived. So they gave to one another. They gave to, to poverty, to issues, to those in need. And today we have that opportunity as well through nonprofits, through missionaries, through uh, whatever organizations are working against human trafficking and poverty and slavery and all that kind of stuff. And I know many of you are devoted to being generous, to see God's kingdom come and will be done in some of those darkest and most messed up places in the world. It's a beautiful thing. And the third place we see these early Christians giving is to the church. So not peer-to-peer, -peer, but actually to this, what you would have to call at this point, an organized community. And we're told twice in this passage that they lay these gifts, take the money and lay these gifts at the apostles' feet. This is essentially their version of passing the offering bucket and saying there's something happening here that we're part of and that we believe in and that we benefit from. And so we're going to take our money and our stuff and we're going to lay it down at the leaders God has chosen um, to shepherd and to care for this community. 
And so sometimes when those gifts are given, the apostles then would use it to to serve those in need, both within and outside the church. Sometimes it would actually go to support those leaders, essentially to pay staff, if you will. And there were all sorts of other costs that, that, that come with being a church community. And so we get this picture that these early Christians trusted their money and their gifts to Christ at the feet of those God had appointed to be leaders. Okay, we'll go some real talk. Man, we're having fun this morning, aren't we? Thanks for coming to my birthday party. Um, one of the things I've run into over and over again and experienced myself is that sometimes it's hard to be real excited about giving money to the local church. There's much more exciting things to give it to. Right? To all these organizations doing great kingdom work around the world. It's hard to get excited about giving money to the church. And partly just because it's not that, you know, it's like we're renting a school building and we're hiring staff and we're paying bills and we're doing a lot of ministry in the, in the church and in the city, but we kind of like a little more bang for our buck in that sense. That's one reason. One of the other reasons it's hard for us to give to the local church is because it's easy to be skeptical about how that money is getting used or where it's going. And the truth is that if we printed off um, the Antioch budget and gave everybody here a copy, and my best guess is there's about 800 to 1,000 people that would consider Antioch their church. And if we gave everybody a copy and let you read through it, we would all have suggestions. We would all say, oh, do we need to spend that much and why aren't we spending more on this, right? When you get 1,000 voices, you're going to go, yeah, we could, there's, we're all going to have different perspectives, so very early on, God, I mean, from the story of Israel into the early church, God raises up leaders to have those conversations and to make those decisions. In the early church, it's the apostles and eventually the pastors and the elders. And these Christians would come and bring these gifts, place them at the apostles' feet, not saying, I want you to spend it on this or I want it to make sure it goes to that, but saying, this is my gift to Jesus. And I'm trusting you as God's appointed leaders to distribute it wisely. And some of us have a hard time trusting our church leaders with our money. And here's what I would say. There's multiple places in the New Testament where guys like me, pastors and elders, are warned that we are held accountable for the souls of those under our care. Oh, I'm super uncomfortable with that. But that's a pretty clear picture, that I report to God on behalf of you, like what I teach, and Ken and I and the other elders here, how we lead and how we shape and the culture that we create and the kind of disciples that are formed here, we stand before Jesus for you guys. So whether you realize it or not, 
You're trusting your soul to the spiritual leadership in this church. You're trusting your kids to the leadership in this church. And you're telling me you won't trust us with your money? I plead with you, please don't value your money over your soul. Please don't care more about your money than your kids. And if you really can't trust this church or whatever church you're part of with your money, then go find a different one. Because we're talking about your soul here. Now, I'm not saying you can't ask questions or things like that. We're open to conversation. If you want to know where dollars are going, that information's accessible. So it's not some weird power control thing I'm saying. I'm just saying the very fact that you're here means that you're trusting us with something so much more valuable than your dollar bills. So let me propose, as I close, three shifts in how to think about our money. The first shift is this, that my money and stuff belong to me, and I give some of it to God and others. That's how often we think about generosity. So we move from that to my money and stuff belong to God. I listen to him and ask how he wants me to steward what he's entrusted to me. Isn't that a huge shift? My stuff is God's. Next shift is this. From I have finite resources with which to live my life to God has infinite resources and he generously shares with me and calls me to be part of his mission in the world. Okay, so for many of us, the reasons we don't give, the reasons we aren't generous in any direction is because we're not sure that we're going to be okay. We're not sure that we, we're going to be all right. And the gospel would say that we have everything we need in Christ, that God has promised to provide for all of our needs, that he's with us, whether we have little or whether we have much. And so whatever we have, he's entrusted to us and invited us to use for his kingdom. And finally, this shift from I give generously when a legit need is presented to me to in response to the grace God has given me, I proactively look for ways to be generous. Okay, so in the first picture, we give whenever somebody shows us a picture of a starving kid or when somebody asks us for help. We give in response, reactively. What we see here in the early church and in the heart of Jesus himself is that he's not giving the bare minimum, but these guys are looking for ways, proactively, creatively, strategically, to leverage everything, every good thing in their life for the benefit of the kingdom and others. So that's what I would propose, and uh, you'll probably see those again sometime. And so here's my ask at the end of the day. And again, this isn't a fundraising pitch. This is me as one of your pastors pleading with your soul. If you don't give at all, would you consider giving? And if you give occasionally, would you consider giving regularly? And if you give regularly, would you consider giving more? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
And I'm not going to tell you where that generosity goes, but I'm telling you, as somebody who loves you and cares about you, that at the heart of the universe is a generous God, and true life is found not in getting more, but in giving more. Because at the end of the day, God is a giver. Some of us see him as a taker, constantly asking for more, demanding more from us. But that's not the story. The story is that God has given himself to us. And even the way we talk about salvation, sometimes we talk about ourselves as people who have given our lives to Christ. We, we say that all the time as Christians. When did you give your life to Jesus? The gospel isn't that you gave your life to Jesus, it's that he gave his life to you. It's by grace we've been saved. God's radical generosity, my dream, my heart, my hope, along with Ken and the other elders in the church, is that the spirit of God would work deeply within us to call forth a generous community that bears the image of Christ in Bend and around the world. Just so happens, we're going to take the offering. <laughs> and uh, we do this as an act of worship. This isn't where we pay our God tax. This is where we submit this part of ourselves, our money and our stuff to God in worship. So Lily's going to come, share a song. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll receive the offering. Father, we are so thankful for the lavish grace, the extreme abundant generosity that you've given us. God, we repent for thinking of ourselves as self-made. When you have made us, you have given us life and every day and every breath and every dollar. And so, God, I'm, it's awkward sometimes to talk about this stuff. I certainly am sensitive to those that would feel guilted or shamed or pressured or turned off by this conversation. And I would simply just trust that to you and ask your spirit, to work through all of the, the difficulties in this discussion and to work deeply to form the life and image of Jesus in this, in this community, in us. Lord, we need to be transformed. We want to join you as you transform the world. And so we're here today in response to your grace to offer ourselves back to you. So Jesus, if you want to resource the city of Bend, through this church. We're your people. We want to freely give as we freely received. For your glory, for your name. In Jesus' name.